The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Borey, Part 4, The 1900s. Adler. Alfred Adler was born in the suburbs of Vienna on February 7, 1870. The third child, second son, of a Jewish grain merchant and his wife. As a child, Alfred developed rickets, which kept him from walking until he was four years old. At age five, he nearly died of pneumonia. It was at this age that young Alfred Adler decided to become a physician. Alfred was an average student, preferring playing outdoors to being cooped up in school. He was quite outgoing, popular, and active, and was known for his efforts at outdoing his older brother, Sigmund. He received a medical degree from the University of Vienna in 1895. During his college years, he became attached to a group of socialist students, among which he found his wife-to-be, Raisa Epstein. She was an intellectual and a social activist who had come from Russia to study in Vienna. They married in 1897 and eventually had four children, two of whom became psychiatrists. Adler began his medical career as an ophthalmologist, but soon switched to general practice and established his office in a lower class part of Vienna, across from the Prater a combination amusement park and circus. His clients included circus people, and it has been suggested that the unusual strengths and weaknesses of the performers led to his insights into organ inferiorities and compensation. Adler then turned to psychiatry, and in 1907 was invited to join Freud's discussion group. After writing papers on organic inferiority, which were quite compatible with Freud's views, he wrote first a paper concerning aggression instinct, which Freud did not approve of, and then a paper on children's feelings of inferiority, which suggested that Freud's sexual notions be taken more metaphorically than literally. Although Freud named Adler the president of the Viennese Analytic Society and the co-editor of the organization's newsletter, Adler did not stop his criticism. A debate between Adler's supporters and Freud's supporters was arranged, but it resulted in Adler, with nine other members of the organization, resigning to form the Society for Free Psychoanalysis in 1911. This organization became the Society for Individual Psychology in the following year. During World War I, Adler served as a physician in the Austrian army, first on the Russian front and later in a children's hospital. During his tenure as a physician in the army, Adler saw firsthand the damage that war does, and his thought turned increasingly to the concept of social interest. He felt that if humanity was to survive, humanity had to change its ways. After the war, 
Adler was involved in various projects, including clinics attached to state schools and the training of teachers. In 1926, he moved to the United States to lecture, eventually accepting a visiting position on the Long Island College of Medicine. And in 1934, he and his family left Vienna forever. On May 28, 1937, during a series of lectures at Aberdeen University, Alfred Adler died of a heart attack. Alfred Adler postulated a single drive or motivating force behind all of our behavior and experience. By the time his theory had gelled into its most mature form, he called that motivating force the striving for perfection. It is the desire that we all have to fulfill our potential, to come closer and closer to our ideal. It is, as many of you will already see, very similar to the more popular idea of self-actualization. Perfection and ideal are troublesome words, though. On one hand, they are very positive goals. Shouldn't we all be striving for the ideal? And yet in psychology, they are often given a rather negative connotation. Perfection and ideals are, practically by definition, things you cannot reach. Many people, in fact, live very sad and painful lives trying to be perfect. As you will see, other theorists, like Karen Hornet and Carl Rogers, emphasize this problem. Now, Adler talks about it too, but he sees this negative kind of idealism as a perversion of the more positive understanding. So we shall return to this in a little while. Striving for perfection was not the first phrase that Adler used to refer to his single motivating force— his earliest phrase was the aggression drive, referring to the reaction that we have when other drives, such as our need to eat, be sexually satisfied, get things done, to be loved, are frustrated. It might be better called the assertiveness drive, since we think of aggression as physical and negative. But it was Adler's idea of the aggression drive that first caused friction between him and Sigmund Freud. Freud was afraid that it would detract from the crucial position of the sex drive in psychoanalytic theory. Despite Freud's dislike for Adler's idea of the aggression drive, he himself introduced something very similar much later in his life, the thanatos, or death instinct. Another word that Adler used to refer to the basic motivation was compensation, or striving to overcome. Since we all have problems, shortcomings, inferiorities of one sort or another, Adler felt, early in his writing, that our personalities could be accounted for by the ways in which we do, or do not, compensate or overcome those problems. The idea still plays an important role in his theory, as you will see. 
but he rejected it as a label for the basic motive because it makes it sound as if it is your problems that cause you to be what you are. One of Adler's earliest phrases was masculine protest. He noted something pretty obvious in his culture, and by no means absent from our own, that boys were held in higher esteem than girls. Boys wanted, often desperately, to be thought of as strong, aggressive, in control, i.e. masculine, and not weak, passive, or dependent, i.e. feminine. The point, of course, was that men are somehow basically better than women. They do, after all, have all of the power, the education, and apparently the talent and motivation needed to do great things, while women did not. Now, you can still hear this idea in the kinds of comments that perhaps some older people make about little boys or little girls. If a baby boy fusses or demands to have his own way, masculine protest, they will say he's a natural boy. He's all boy. Now, if a little girl is quiet and shy, she is praised for her femininity. Now, on the other hand, if a boy is quiet and shy, they worry that he might grow up to be a sissy or perhaps even gay. Or if a little girl is assertive, if she gets her way, they call her a tomboy, they say that she is insistent, and they try to reassure themselves that, well, she'll grow out of it and learn to be a proper girl. But Adler did not see men's assertiveness and success in the world as due to some innate superiority. He saw that success as a reflection of the fact that boys are encouraged to be assertive in life, whereas girls are discouraged from being assertive. Both boys and girls, however, begin life with the same capacity for protest. Because so many people misunderstand him to mean that men are innately more assertive, this led Adler to limit his use of that phrase, masculine protest. The last phrase that he used before switching to striving for perfection was striving for superiority. His use of this phrase reflects one of the philosophical roots of his idea. Friedrich Nietzsche developed a philosophy that considered the will to power to be the basic motive of human life. Although striving for superiority does refer to the desire to be better, it also contains the idea that we want to be better than others, rather than better in our own right. Adler later tended to use striving for superiority more in reference to unhealthy or neurotic striving. A lot of this playing with words reflects Adler's groping toward a really different kind of personality theory than the one represented by Freud. Freud's theory is what we would nowadays call a reductionistic one. He tried most of his life to get the concepts down to the physiological level. Although he admitted failure in the end, life is nevertheless explained in terms of basic physiological needs. 
In addition, Freud tended to carve up the person into smaller theoretical concepts. The id, the ego, the superego. Adler, on the other hand, was influenced by the writing of Jan Smuts, the South African philosopher and statesman. Smuts felt that in order to understand people, we have to understand them as more unified wholes than as a collection of bits and pieces. We have to understand them in the context of their environment, both physical and social. This approach is called holism, and Adler took it very much to heart. First, to reflect the idea that we should see people as wholes rather than as parts, he decided to label his approach to psychology individual psychology. The word individual means literally undivided. Second, instead of talking about a person's personality with the traditional sense of internal traits, structures, dynamics, conflicts, and so on, he preferred to talk about style of life nowadays, Lifestyle. Lifestyle refers to how you live your life, how you handle problems and interpersonal relations. Here's what he himself had to say about it. Quote, The style of life of a tree is the individuality of a tree expressing itself and molding itself in an environment. We recognize a style when we see it against a background of an environment different from what we expect. For then we realize that every tree has a life pattern and is not merely a mechanical reaction to an environment. End quote. That last point, that lifestyle is not merely a mechanical reaction, is the second way in which Adler differs dramatically from Freud. For Freud, the things that happened in the past, such as early childhood trauma, determine what you're like in the present. Adler sees motivation as a matter of moving toward the future rather than being driven mechanistically by the past. We are drawn toward our goals, our purposes, our ideals, and this is called teleology. Moving things from the past into the future has some dramatic effects. Since the future is not here yet, a teleological approach to motivation takes the necessity out of things. In a traditional mechanistic approach, cause leads to effect. If A, B, and C happen, then X, Y, and Z must of necessity also happen. But you don't have to reach your goals or meet your ideals, and they can change along the way. Teleology acknowledges that life is hard and uncertain, but it always has room for change. Another major influence on Adler's thinking was the philosopher Hans Weihinger, who wrote a book called The Philosophy of As If. Weihinger believed that ultimate truth would always be beyond us, but that for practical purposes, we need to create partial truths. Weihinger's main interest was science, so he gave us as examples such partial truths as protons and electrons, waves of light, gravity as distortion of space, and so on. Contrary to what many of us non-scientists tend to assume, these are not things that anyone has seen or proven to exist, but they are useful constructs. 
They work for the moment. They let us do science. And hopefully, they will lead to better, more useful constructs. And so we use them as if they were true. And he called these partial truths fictions. Weihinger and Adler pointed out that we use fictions in day-to-day living as well. We behave as if we knew the world would be here tomorrow, as if we were sure what good and bad are all about, as if everything that we see is as we see it, and so on. Now, Adler called this fictional finalism. You can understand this phrase, fictional finalism, most easily if you think about an example. Many people behave as if there were a heaven or a hell in their personal future. Many even insist upon the necessity of this supernatural reward and punishment as a motivation to make human beings act morally. Now, it certainly may be that there truly is a heaven and a hell in our future. But most of us don't consider that a proven fact. And yet, for many people, it seems, acting as if they will face a cosmic judgment serves as a restraint upon their behavior whether or not that expectation matches with reality. This belief is a fiction in Walhinger's and Adler's sense of the word, and finalism refers to the teleology of it. The fiction lies in the future, and yet it influences our behavior today. Adler added that at the center of each of our lifestyles, there sits one of these fictions, an important one about who we are and where we are going. Criticisms of Adler tend to involve the issue of whether or not, or to what degree, his theory is scientific. The mainstream of psychology today is experimentally oriented, which means, among other things, that the concepts that a theory uses must be able to be measured and manipulated. This in turn means that an experimental orientation prefers physical or behavioral variables. Adler, as we saw, uses basic concepts that are far from physical and behavioral. Striving for perfection, how do you measure that? Or compensation, or feelings of inferiority, or social interest. The experimental method also makes a basic assumption that all things operate in terms of cause and effect. Adler would certainly agree that physical things do so, but he would adamantly deny that people do. Instead, Adler takes the teleological route, that people are determined by their ideals, goals, values, and final fictions. Teleology takes the necessity out of things. A person doesn't have to respond a certain way to a certain circumstance. A person can make choices. A person can create his or her own personality, can change his or her own lifestyle. But from the experimental perspective, these things are illusions that a scientist, even a personality theorist, dare not give into. There would be many more psychiatrists and psychoanalysts and other therapists going by other titles 
It is impossible to overemphasize the impact that these gentlemen, especially Freud himself, would have on psychology, and particularly on clinical psychology. Following and offering their own slants on the issues would be Anna Freud, Heinz Hartmann, Eric Erickson, Otto Rank, Sandor Ferenzi, Karen Hornet, Eric Fromm, Harry Stack Sullivan, Henry Murray, Gordon Allport, Gardner Murphy, George Kelly, Carl Rogers, Ludwig Binsfanger, and many, many more. <laughs> 